You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So when I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the gate, valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when the Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again to everyone. It is great to be with you all, and uh, I'll just add my voice, welcoming the guests who are here. If we've never met before, my name is Will. And I really hope uh, all of you here in attendance will be able to jump in with us for our little lunch gathering, our potluck afterwards. Uh, I hear a lot of people, you know, we, we've come out of COVID and, you know, our, our church kind of looked one way beforehand and now there's lots of new people and a lot of people have acknowledged, man, I don't even, uh, there's lots of people here I've never met. So I want to just encourage you, go to the potluck and if possible, uh, if you're feeling enough social energy this morning, sit across the table from somebody that you don't know, somebody you haven't met or been able to, to get to know very well. Um, but I, I hope you all will hang with us during that time. Uh, also, before I forget, I brought with me about five copies of this book on work. 
Uh, that's the theme that we're going to be considering this morning. And uh, they're free. They're a free giveaway. Just, you know, read it. If you've got five books on your shelf that you need to read and you've not finished those yet, don't grab one of these copies. If you're looking for something to read and you're going to read it, we've got five. This book was so helpful for me a couple years ago. As we consider uh, what God has called us to in our vocation, our nine to five, what we do with the majority of the kind of waking hours of our life. And so that is readily available if any of you would like to grab it on your way out. Um, let's pray together now, and we're going to look uh, a little more closely at Nehemiah chapter 2. God, I'm just struck by that passage we read during our time of confession and assurance, um, just that, that we are called to work. Um, so much of the significance and meaning that we find in life is found through our work, what we put our hands to, what we devote our life towards building. And yet so often we work with poor motives. We work just, to, just for financial gain or perhaps to be seen as significant or important. But God, you've given work its significance and its dignity in that as we work, we work unto you. We work throughout our lives, whether it's in the church, preaching sermons, changing diapers, washing dishes, building websites, or anything else in between. God, we do it so that we might, when we cross into eternity, hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, would you stir in us a desire to hear those words as we consider the work you've called us to this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me just begin this morning by getting us a little bit caught up with what's happening in the book of Nehemiah. That's what we are preaching through as a church. And so uh, Nehemiah is uh, at the beginning of the book in one of the Persian capital cities, and he hears this really troubling news that his people are in great trouble because the city that they live in is broken down. There's no walls for defense. Uh, the city had been burned down by fire from varying raiders and uh, people who had uh, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so the book begins by Nehemiah being burdened for his city uh, that's, that's back home. He then moves that to about a season of four months of praying for that city, uh, which leads to this incredible uh, act of favor that God gives him that we considered last week with the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. So uh, Nehemiah begins with a burden for this city that's been destroyed. He prays, has a conversation with the king, and leaves that conversation not only authorized to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, but with all of the financial backing that he needs to carry out this project. So we pick up then the second half of chapter two this morning, where Nehemiah has now been sent from the king with this backing, with these resources. He crosses over the Jordan River, which is a very significant landmark with the history of the Bible. He then makes his way to Jerusalem. And just in passing, we notice that Nehemiah is not impulsive. He doesn't just jump to action. He's thoughtful. He's deliberate. He, he spent some time inspecting the walls. Uh, I'm sure he was very excited to tell the people that all the resources that they needed to build the walls were there, but, but he waits and he's, he's patient to, to find the right time to tell them uh, uh, about this uh, construction project. And it, it leads to really this very powerful call to action 
that I want us to focus our attention on as we begin this morning, beginning down in verse 17. Let's read verse 17 and 18 together one more time as Nehemiah, now having inspected the walls, having planned and been deliberate about what he's going to do, this is what he says to the people. Now, mind you, they've been there in Jerusalem. Their city's been broken down for some time, and this is the, the, the call to action that he gives them. He says to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. In other words, in maybe modern language, let's get to work. Let's get after it. Let's get to work. And as I mentioned at the beginning, that's actually the theme that I want to focus on this morning, this theme of work because as there's a lot of details and names of gates and different locations around the wall in this chapter, what you'll notice if, if you look carefully is the theme of work, uh, of building, of doing that's all throughout. So let me just give you a quick flyover where you see uh, all of these. Beginning in verse 11, Nehemiah describes what God had put in his heart to do. In verse 16, he says, I had not yet told the officials where to do the work. Verse 17, come let us build uh, verse 18, Nehemiah says that the people strengthened their hands for the good work. And then finally, in verse 20, uh, the, the people say, we, his servants, will arise and build. So doing, building, working, a big theme in this chapter. Let me then just pose this question to us this morning. How do you think about your work? How do you think about your vocation, your nine-to-five, if that's the framework that, that you work in? How do you think about your work? I think culturally there's maybe two big camps that people find themselves in. Maybe you're in one of these or you kind of swing back and, and forth between them both. Some of us, when we think about work, what we actually have is a work allergy. We hate work. And whether it's your current job that you have, you just loathe it, or just work in general. For you, if you have a work allergy, what work is is just a, uh, a necessity that you have to do in your life so that you can uh, really do the things you love to do, maybe creative endeavors or vacations or time with friends. Uh, if you have a work allergy, uh, work is nothing but a means to an end, uh, something that just puts food on the table. And so you wake up dreading Monday morning and longing for Friday afternoon when you can punch the clock and be done for the week. Some of us have a work allergy, while others of us have what I'll just describe as a work addiction. And we have a word for this, don't we? A workaholic. And, and for uh, someone who has a work addiction, uh, work is not just something you do to put food on the table, and it's not just something that gives some degree of significance and satisfaction to your life. It is the thing that you look to, to 
to find significance and satisfaction. It finds ultimate meaning uh, in, in your life. You put a ton of weight on, on what you do for, uh, for your nine to five. And maybe it's because what it provides for you, it, it, the financial gain you get through your work, you work really hard so that you can have more wealth. Uh, maybe you work really hard because of the social significance that it gives you and the recognition and perhaps the praise that you might get there. Um, but all the while, in the midst of a work addiction, you'll sacrifice some of the weightier matters in life, like family, time with friends, Sabbath, a time to just slow down and rest and not do and just be, maybe engaging in the church. All of that will go on the altar because work is so incredibly significant in your life. Those are two camps that, that maybe you swing in and out of those areas pending on what work looks like for you right now. How about this question, though? What is work from God's perspective? What is, what is the perspective that God would have us view when we go into work on Monday morning or uh, when we stay at home with our little ones? What is the perspective that God would have us hold when it comes to work? And what I want to do is just give you a simple statement, work from a biblical perspective, and then I want to break that, that statement out a little bit to you and give it some explanation. So what is work from God's perspective? Here's what I'll describe it as. Work is a gift, Work is actually a gift given from God, or work is a, is a gift given for God's glory and our neighbor's good. That is why we work. Work is a gift that God has given us for his glory and then our neighbor's good. Let's break down each component of that little statement, okay? Work as a gift. Have you ever thought about your work, what you do on a, on a day-to-day basis, how you spend your waking hours? Do you ever think about that as a gift? That's actually how work is described in the opening pages of your Bible. So, when you read the, how the world came to be in Genesis 1 through 3, you see really the, the author of that setting in contrast what God is doing uh, from some of the other religious ideas of the day. So for example, uh, the, the Babylonian tale of how the world came to be is that the gods were at war fighting with each other and the universe just burst on the scene a, a, as a result of this war that they were uh, waging. Greeks, on the other hand, as they thought about their creation account and what the gods were doing sort of before the world came to be, they were a, a culture that, that really loathed work and loved leisure and philosophy and just spending time, you know, sipping wine and discussing big ideas. And so how they describe the gods at the beginning of the creation is doing nothing, just enjoying leisure, and they actually viewed work as something that humans were cursed with. Now, when we open the pages of the Bible, we see neither a war taking place, nor do we see God simply sitting back uh, leisurely, avoiding any work. We see the God of the Bible working, building, creating, because he had to? No, because he wanted to. Uh, you, we could almost say that God is working, building, creating for the sheer joy of it. Listen to how Tim Keller describes God on the opening pages of the Bible. He says, in the beginning, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were to do that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have had a more exalted inauguration. Brothers and sisters, our work 
is a gift that God gives us. We recognize that even in the call to worship that we read this morning about how God is mindful of us and about how God has given dominion to us over his creation, how we're to rule over it and cultivate and build. This is always meant to be a gift that we receive, not something we find ultimate meaning and purpose in. We find that in God himself, but nonetheless, a gift that we're able to enjoy. So number one, work is a gift that God has given us. Number one, for his glory. Let me just briefly observe that as we begin to, to now look at Nehemiah chapter 2. So as Nehemiah is in this kind of confrontation with people who don't want him to build the wall, he, he shows much of his motive in, in doing this. Simply down in verse 20, uh, he describes how the God of heaven will make us prosper. We are his servants. What gives our, our work meaning and significance is that it's all done before the, the God of the universe who works and builds. He sees what we do, uh, and we are, as we read in our prayer of confession, uh, not just to work to make money, not just to work so that our boss will stay off our back, but we work hard because we do it before the Lord. We work as unto the Lord and not unto men. So God, who at the beginning is working, building, creating, makes us in his image so that we would enter into his creation and work and build and create uh, and, and copy him, if you will, so that we bring glory uh, back to him for the work that we do. We, we could say it like this. In the same way that God worked on his creation for his glory, we are called to work in his creation for his glory. What we do on a day-to-day -day basis matters because as we work before the eyes of God, it brings glory to him. So that's, that's one of the, the aspects of our work is that it gives glory to him. But another is that it is done for the good of our neighbor. The glory of God, the good of our neighbor. If you look back with me at the beginning of the chapter, Nehemiah's in this confrontation with these kind of surrounding leaders of uh, the people of Israel, uh, and, and it says that they were uh, troubled because someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So notice, Nehemiah didn't come to Jerusalem because he really wanted to exercise his gift in building a wall, or because he was really creative and artistic and wanted to, uh, you know, do something that was very beautiful. Those things might be true, but what is Nehemiah's primary motive of going back to Jerusalem? It's the welfare of his people. Let me ask you this question this morning. What is, what is God's primary commandment that ought to shape the way you think about life? We are to, number one, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, what are we to do? We're to love our neighbor as ourself. Can I ask you this question this morning? Have you ever connected what you do from nine to five, again, if that's your work week, to the great commandment? Have you ever connected your job to the great commandment that God has given us? Where when we go to work, our primary motive is, God, would this be glorifying to you? Because I love you, I want to serve you in this job, whether it is mopping floors or ruling over an entire city. I want to do it unto you. But then secondly, the reason that I go to work is what I do, whether it's staying home with kids or it's uh, working at a restaurant or anything, whatever it is, is actually an act of love for neighbor. One of the ways that we spend the majority of our lives fulfilling the great commandment is what we do in our job. How would it transform your work 
even as mundane as you might sometimes think it is, if you were to view it through that framework of you loving your neighbor by the work that you do, I think it would transform it. It transformed the way Martin Luther saw work during the Reformation. So in the Reformation days, what they basically thought is the only work that really matters is what priests do on Sundays and bishops. That's it. That's really all that matters. And, you know, all of you lay people who work, really the only reason you work is so that you can give money to the church so that they can, can do that. But, but Martin Luther said something very provocative in those days. He actually said that the farmer shoveling manure or the maid milking cows is providing just as much a service uh, to God and neighbor as the priest is who's, pre, who's praying and preaching. Why? Because as he shovels manure or as she uh, gets milk from the cow and it's done out of a love for neighbor, they are reflecting the character of God on creation. They, they are doing their task, not just to do it, not just so that there's food to eat, but an act out of love uh, for, for uh, the neighbors that, that God had put around them. So why do we work? What is work all about? It's a gift from God. It's not a burden. It's not something we just have to do to survive. It's a gift given for his glory and for uh, the love of the people he's put in our lives. This morning, I, I, on my way in, I stopped at uh, Dunkin' Donuts, which I don't usually do, a good wholesome breakfast before I came to preach to you this morning. And the people, the, the, the two young women who were working there were just having the time of their lives. They were Sunday morning, bright and early, taking coffee and donut orders. They just loved it. No, they looked miserable. <laughs> they looked miserable as they're just order after order, you know, going through the process, bagging people's stuff up. And, you know, I would imagine for most people working at Dunkin' Donuts, like, isn't the dream job? Maybe for you, that, would, that it would actually be a dream job. But for a lot of people, you know, that would maybe be a stepping stone to somewhere else vocationally. But I just couldn't help but think as I was getting ready to come and talk about this, man, even with this mundane, difficult job on a Sunday morning, what kind of joy might they experience if this was not just what they had to do to put a little bit of money in the bank account? But if even the simple act of mopping floors, serving food to people was done, recognizing, man, as I go even to do this, God is glorified and my neighbor is served. Can I just invite you to consider whatever you do for your vocation, whether you stay home, uh, whether you go to an office somewhere, whatever you do, view it through that framework. It's a gift that God has given you for his glory and your neighbor's good. Now, what I want to do is move from this kind of high level of work that we're considering this morning to zooming in a little bit closer with some of the themes in this passage. And I want to just draw a couple questions that I think are relevant that this passage shows us uh, concerning work. And so the first question I want to ask is this. How do we, recognizing that, that you know, work is a gift from God and it's done for his glory and the good of our neighbor, how do we find our specific work? How do we find our calling, what God would have us do specifically? Because there's all kinds of different things we could do. You know, how do we find our calling, what God wants us to do with our vocation, uh, with, with our own lives? If there were still Christian bookstores around, I haven't seen any in a while, uh, but if there were, man, there would be entire sections devoted to this, finding God's call on your life. That's a big one. I can't unpack all of it. I've got a few places that I think are helpful for you to look as you're processing, especially if maybe if you're a
you're a younger person or you're in a season of maybe considering a career change or something like that, what is God calling you to do? Where should you look to find the answers to that question? The number one, this, I'm gonna need to explain this, but bear with me for a second. Hey, the first place you can actually look to find God's call in your life is your own heart. And I realize I sound like every Disney movie when I say that, but just bear with me for, for just a second. You, you can actually look at what God is calling you to inside of your heart or with the things that you're passionate about, the things that you desire. Listen to how Nehemiah described his call here in verse, uh, I, don't, I can't remember exactly where he said in this passage. I'll find it in a minute. But this is what he, he says as, the, as he's about to, to start the project. I hadn't yet told them what the God of heaven had put into my heart to do. How did Nehemiah find God's call to go build the wall? Did God show up at his doorstep and say, hey, Nehemiah, the wall's broken down, go build it? No. He had an internal passion, a, a desire, something that he felt within his heart that began the process. And I say that to say, hey, we put such emphasis in our culture right now of like, discover your real self, look inside of you, you know, uh, look inside your heart to find your real self. And we want to set most of that aside. But there is something to God working through our desires and our longings. There is something to that. If you have a desire or a longing to do something particular in the IT field or the restaurant industry or whatever kind of causes you to come to life, you can certainly lean into that. Or maybe on a more service-oriented level, man, I just pray for freedom for some of you to explore burdens that you have for the church, for the city that we live in. If God has put it in your heart to serve at-risk youth, pray into that a little bit. If God has put it in your heart to serve alongside a pregnancy help center or uh, to engage in uh, the work of a missionary or, uh, or, or any area of loving and serving the church of the city, that, that, begin with that. That's a good thing. You shouldn't just discount that if you have a desire to do something. So I think that's the first place that you ought to look is just your desires. What has God put in there that he's burdened you for? But then let's balance that, okay, with the second place we should look, which is God's word. Because you know what God's word has to say to us? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? So, so in one regard, we, we may have desires that are from God that he wants us to move towards. On the other hand, a lot of times we desire things that will eventually destroy us and, and we're just being deceived. Uh, so, so we need to weigh the things that, that we desire to do against God's word. Do the specific things actions that I want to take, do they line up with God's word? So when Nehemiah decided to build a wall and, and bring the exiles back to Jerusalem, that was actually spoken about that, that would, that's supposed to happen in God's word, that what he was specifically supposed to do was clearly there. But even on a motive level, what we see Nehemiah wanting to do here is serve people and glorify God. I think it's important to weigh what you desire in your heart, uh, 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 the motives against God's word. So maybe you, you have a desire to, to be a doctor. You want to go into the medical field. And if your heart on that is, I just want to make a ton of money, retire a little bit early, and have some flexibility with my schedule, man, test that against God's word. I'm not sure if those motives are, are, are there from the Lord. But if you're saying, I want to go in the medical field because I want to love my neighbor by taking care of them medically, and I want to make a lot of money to steward it well and put it towards things that matter, man, that's a good thing to do. Evaluate that. If you're considering a new job, maybe a, a different position with a government contractor, and you're thinking, man, I'm really going to be able to climb the ladder with this. I'm really going to be able to uh, raise my income to this level. Man, test that a little bit. 
Because what you may discover is I may climb the ladder, I may make some more money, but the amount of time that this is going to pull me away from my family and from other important things in my life, I don't think this is the right thing. Test your desires against God's word. That's, that's the second place I would encourage you to look. Your heart, God's word. And then the third area is this broad category I'll describe as God's providence. God's providence, which is God working through just the natural affairs of our life. So you have a desire to do something. It's a godly desire. You've tested it against God's words. What is his providence saying? In other words, is there any sort of open door? Is there any sort of next step that you can take with the things that you desire to do? God's providence has to do with your gifting. Uh, So I was sure from my heart's desire when I saw Space Jam number one, the NBA was where, where I was supposed to be. Uh, but in God's providence, obviously, skill set-wise, that's, that's not his call in my life. Providence shut that down a, in middle school. It became clear that that wasn't going to happen, right? Um, so you may have a desire. What, what about your giftings? Do you, do you have a skill set that, that matches what you, de- what you desire? Are there some open doors to, to, to do that? I, I remember talking with my son earlier this week. He just asked me, hey, Dad, how did you know to plant a church? And it was really this process. I, I began years ago with a desire to see a church planted in Manassas. I tested that against God's word, both what it looks like to plant a church, God would have you do it. And then Providence had me wait for years for any sort of door to open uh, in order to, to be able to do it. But those three areas were at work when I pursued it. I just give you those as just practical wisdom. As you're discerning what to do with your vocation, what do you desire to do? Test what you desire to do against God's word, what you know to be true about him. And then, and then finally, what's, what in providence is before you? What simple next step can you take uh, in, in that direction? So that's finding God's call in our life. Let's look a, a little more briefly about kind of this question. What about our work within the church? So what we're talking about so far is our kind of vocation that we do, which the majority of us is not uh, spent mostly on the, on the church. Uh, what, what about our work in, in the church, though? I think there's a couple wrong views we need to, to be careful of. The first one, I alluded to it earlier during the Reformation era, uh, but, but the first one would, would, be, would be this. Basically, the whole reason you go to work is so that you can tithe and go to discipleship group on Wednesday nights. That, that is why you work. So what you do really doesn't matter at all. As long as you can give your money so the professionals can do ministry, that, that's why you go to work. That's, that's wrong. That's wrong. What we're saying this morning is what you do for work is significant in and of itself, not just for what it provides for you to do on a spiritual or church level. However, the other, the other uh, thing that we would want to avoid is that we just work so hard because what we do kind of in the world is so significant that there's no time left to use the gifts that God has given you to build up the church. We, we want to be able to, to hold both. Recognize one, your work matters, not just to support ministry and not just to put bread on the table. What you do matters, but God also wants to use ordinary members to carry out significant ministry among his people. What we do matters for work, but he also wants us to have the space and time in order to be able to serve his purposes specifically in the world as well. And that's really what we see happening in this passage. We see the people who already have, I'm sure, responsibilities that they're carrying out throughout their day-to-day, but they also get called together into rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. And it says that when they heard that call, they said, let us rise up and build. 
Similarly, as God allows and as we build time in our schedule, God is calling us with a variety of gifts represented in this room to carry out his purposes in the world today. And when all of the members of the church say together, let us rise up and build like the people in this story did, it creates actually the kind of church all of us want to be a part of. Let me just ask this question. What is the best kind of church out there? If we were to rank different types of churches, what's the best kind of church? The church where the the speaker on the stage is so dynamic. You come just so excited to hear every week. Every message is life-changing. The music is just out of a Disney movie. It is just incredible. I mean, it's a beautiful ensemble. The programs meet your every need. And when you are greeted with a pour-over with coffee on your way in, it just tops it like, like is, is, that, is that the best kind of church? No, no, I would suggest to you it's not. The most compelling, the most attractive, the most powerful churches in the world are not when the professionals on the stage get busy. It's when the people of God say together, let us, let us rise up and build. Because God has bestowed on his body a variety of gifts that he wants to use to build this church. And so can I just give a few areas to us this morning to call us to, man, let us rise up and build here on Sunday morning. So many of you serve in so many different ways, whether it's kids, hospitality, the band, production, setup. But let's rise up and build continually in such a way here on Sunday morning that no team leader is ever like frantically searching for someone to serve because there's such an abundance of people saying, yes, let's rise up and build. Let's rise up and build together by inviting people to church as we're able, as the Lord provides opportunities, inviting people here in our midst. Let's rise up and build outside of Sunday in our discipleship groups by number one, being committed to them. I know through the summer, you know, we're a little more laxed on groups. We're going to give them a lot more direction, a lot more focus in the next month or so. But as it comes to our discipleship groups, let's rise up and build by being number one, committed to them, and then vulnerable with the real things that are going on in our lives so that we can find growth and transformation as we engage with one another. Hey, let's rise up and build God's church by restoring what was here about a year and a half ago. One of our greatest strengths at New City was our community life together. Whether it was showing up at First Friday events, uh, uh, times at people's homes, like finding community life, which is significant in the eyes of God, was a huge aspect of our church. We're going to need to rebuild that coming out of COVID, and we're about to relaunch uh, what we were once calling missional communities. We're going to rename them regional communities where we can walk with one another and experience fellowship with one another. Let's rise up and build by exercising hospitality, having people across from our dinner tables, getting to know them, praying for them, and speaking God's word into our lives. When we have this kind of mindset in the church, It creates the kind of church that we all want to be a part of. It's not the professionals like Nehemiah and the other uh, leaders that are in the story that make it happen. It's the people coming together saying, let us rise up and build. 
So that's considering finding God's call on our life, maybe our vocation. That's considering how we think about our vocation and the church and how we uh, engage in both of those areas. I, I just want to consider one final area with you in this passage as it pertains to our work. And that final area is this. How do we persevere in our work? How do we continue steadfastly and persevere in the work that God has given us because we've got to balance what we said earlier about work as a gift in Genesis 1 and 2 with what happened with work in Genesis chapter 3. Because here's what happened when sin entered the world. Sin affects everything. You know where I've come to discover sin is most visibly seen and most destructive? In God's greatest gifts. In God's greatest gifts, sin often manifests itself the most. And so uh, we see that maybe with family and marriage. That is one of God's greatest gifts that he's given us, but sometimes it can be just so difficult. The same is true of work. It's a gift that he's given us, but as a result of sin that entered the world, was what was once a gift is now intermingled with a curse, which makes work very difficult. Here's what God said to Adam after he ate from the fruit of the tree of the garden and he sinned against his maker. God says to Adam, because of you, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. No matter what your vocation is, whether it's literal farming or any other area of work, it will be affected by these words. All of our work, pastoring, parenting, being a mechanic, uh, working at a restaurant, doesn't matter what, all of it is affected by the fall and now carries with it thorns and thistles. And these thorns and thistles show up in different ways. Uh, you know, for Nehemiah, it was these people who were opposing him with the work that he was trying to do. And he'll experience more thorns and thistles later on. Sometimes the, the thorns and thistles is just that our work seems so pointless and draining and meaningless. That's a part of the curse. Sometimes the thorns we experience in our work is just interpersonal conflict. Some of you think to yourself, you would just love your job if it weren't for the people that you had to deal with therein. It's interpersonal stuff that, that, that makes it. Sometimes it's just straight up that things just break and freeze and don't work the way that they're supposed to. All of our work, no matter what we do, carries with it this difficulty, this curse that we see Nehemiah facing in this chapter. What do we do to then persevere faithfully in the work that God has called us to, even though work is hard? I think it's helpful, one, to just recognize that this is a part of work. Just because something is really hard at work doesn't mean something is like really off. All of us face that. But in the midst of the difficulty, here's just a couple things that I think Nehemiah shows us that's helpful for us. As we struggle with our work, here's what we can recognize. Number one, God can make even our smallest and most meager efforts prosper. God can make even our, our, our simple, small acts of faithfulness prosper. Here's, I think, the question some of us get confronted with sometimes with our work. Even if I pour my life into this thing, will it make any difference whatsoever? 
Will this leave any kind of impact? Will it even matter that I was born and existed in this world? Is there anything that will carry on through this? Nehemiah shows us that even the simple things that we do can find God's favor and prosperity into it. So these, these people are giving him, uh, they're antagonizing him. They say to him at the bottom of verse 19, uh, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, notice his reply to the opposition is not, I've got this letter from King Artaxerxes, I've got everything we need, what you say doesn't matter. No, that's not what Nehemiah says. He simply says, as they oppose him, the God of heaven will make us prosper. The God of heaven will make us prosper. What, what we do, even if it seems empty, even if it seems meaningless, will be carried out with significance because the God of heaven is behind it and he's working in it and through it. What does Peter say to the church concerning their service, their work? First Peter 4.11, whoever serves, do it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be praised through Christ Jesus. We recognize as followers of Jesus, our work can be infused with his favor. And he can take things that maybe seem small and insignificant, things that we may never see the full impact for, and he will cause it to prosper and bear fruit. Um, during the Reformation era, there was a name who we know now, but was not uh, known at all for anything except being a failure in his life. Um, his name was Johannes uh, Gutenberg. And uh, if you maybe remember the, the, I think I'm saying his last name right, the Gutenberg Press, his dream was to create a uh, print system so that lots of books and resources could be printed rapidly and uh, you know, be distributed to the population. During those days, reading was only for the most educated, the very top of society. Uh, everyone else was not even expected to read, but his dream was to create this thing, invent this thing, so that every people, even, the, even common people in his day, would have an opportunity to read. Well, he ended his entire project and even died near bankruptcy. Uh, everyone would have looked at his work and said it was a failure, it didn't matter, it, it carried no significance, but God took it, and through some time later, when Martin Luther was working through the Reformation, used that press to cause the Reformation to spread like wildfire through all, throughout all of Europe. People were getting Bibles in their hands for the first time. Uh, people were, were reading some of the great theological works that were being produced for the very first time, but the inventor of it was unable to see most of his work carried out. Just know whether we invent something great or whether we just change some diapers and put dinner on the table, God can take even those simple acts, those simple acts and cause them to bear fruit and carry significance into eternity. So we recognize, even if I can't see it with the eyes of faith, I look at my work recognizing, God, this is a service to you. You can use it in any way you see fit. That's one way we continue in our work, even when it's difficult. And then here's the second thing, and we'll close. To persevere in our work, even when it's hard, focus on faithfulness as a servant, not success or fruitfulness. Let me say that one more time. In order to persevere in our work when it gets hard, focus on faithfulness to the Lord, not success, not fruitfulness. I hope we see success with the things that we set out to do, but that is not our primary motivation as followers of Jesus. It's not. So Nehemiah in verse 20 says, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and this incredibly powerful statement. We, his servants, 
will arise and build. Why do we show up at work on Monday morning? Why do we get up with that little one that's up way, way too early in the morning? Yes, we have responsibilities that we need to carry out, but our primary motivation is we are his servants. There's this chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. It is this long, like 40 or 50 verses where Paul is just going on and on and on about the resurrection of Jesus. And after he goes on and on about the resurrection of Jesus, I want you to hear how he ties it to our work. Listen to what it says at the very end of this chapter in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Always abound in the work of the Lord, even when it seems meaningless, even when it seems hard. Why? Because in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Why does Paul tie all this stuff about work to the resurrection? He does it because it means even if we don't see any results and we just labor incredibly difficult, see no fruit in our lives, Jesus has opened the door to eternal life. You know what words we as followers of Jesus then long to hear? Whether we're called to preach, or we're called to change diapers, we're called to build websites, we're called to uh, sit in a hospital bed. You know what words we long to hear regardless of our station? Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That is what we work for that is what we long to hear. And the resurrection of Jesus has opened all of it to us. The resurrection of Jesus means that this is not all that there is. And any work that we do rendered unto him is seen as significant. So just in closing, I, I was thinking about something out of this book that this, that this author points out. Um, you know, he says that for the people who are really at the apex of their career, like they are the best at what they do, you know what we often do for them? We give them these, these titles of royalty. So what do we call LeBron James? Even though he was out of the playoffs early this year, right? The king, right? We give this title of royalty because we deem him the best at his craft. We may say things like, oh, you know, the, uh, the queen of comedy or, uh, you know, the king of jazz. Like we give these titles of royalty to the vocations in our society that we deem significant. What would it sound like when we cross into eternity if Jesus were to give these titles of royalty? Well, we would cross into eternity and would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Then we would hear, ladies and gentlemen, the queen of the family dinner. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the king of bedtime and bath time. Ladies and gentlemen, the king of, of sweeping the, door, uh, the floors. Ladies and gentlemen, the, uh, the queen of visiting the elder, elder, elderly at the nursing home. That is what we long to hear. That is why we work, no matter what we're called to do. And once again, the resurrection of Jesus transforms all of our work because this isn't it. This isn't it. We will all one day stand before him and long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So as we come forward and we take the Lord's Supper this morning, 
let's remember that Jesus' work, his assignment, um, was the most difficult work anyone could ever be assigned, and yet he carried it out faithfully. His work was to give up his life, to live perfectly and then to give up his life for you. The bread and the cup symbolizes the body of Jesus given over for you, the blood of Jesus poured out to cover your sins. And then let's remember what happened after he gave up his life. He was raised from the grave, opening up eternal life to all of us, infusing our day-to-day with significance. So let's remember those realities. And if you're here this morning and you do not believe the news that Jesus has given up his life for you, you're not following him, you don't yet know him, let me just say this. Your work for the Lord will one day matter a lot. What we first do before we do anything for God, before we work for God at all, is that we actually allow him to work on us. And how he works on us is by calling us to put our faith in the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. Jesus worked by living a perfect life and dying on a brutal cross for you. He then rose up from the grave and now is ascended into heaven and is one day gonna put everything back together in this world as he returns. And we will all one day stand before him. All that will matter ultimately on that day is if we trusted in the salvation that he offers. So this morning, if you're here and you don't believe, you don't believe the news of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, please stay seated as we take this communion. For the rest of us, come forward and let's contemplate these realities in our seat. Jesus worked for us, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And let's consider how that infuses meaning and significance with what we do with our work. Let's pray together. God, we slow down before we think about any work that you're calling us to do, and we think about the work you've already done for us. Jesus, you said when you were here, your bread was to do the will of him who sent you, and you carried out that will perfectly. Perfectly you lived, sacrificially you died, and then for us you rose from the grave and now are seated on high. God, we trust and believe these truths, and we pray that in light of them, we could work as unto the Lord and not unto man. God, infuse our nine to five with significance. Infuse our work for the church with significance in your favor and your help. All of it being done for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.